0: There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time.
1: They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape.
2: Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners.
1: Good evening, evening,
2: folks. Uh, You are tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of... Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Brian Lynn.
0: And I'm Grace Dietzler. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all of the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blogs at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests guests, and links to our Twitter and podcast pages.
2: Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Colin Che Beimeyer, a PhD student in the Department of Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence here at Oregon State University. Hello, Colin. Hi, everyone.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Colin, is in the new um, Artificial Intelligence program here at Oregon mm. State University. And what year are you in your PhD?
1: It's my third year.
0: Third year. So is the program three years old, or, or is it a little
2: newer?
1: No, it's, it's pretty much brand new. Um, there are two uh, classes that are, are pretty much for the AI program. Um, and uh, the, the big one, it's called Big Ideas in Artificial Intelligence. Um, it had its first class uh, this last fall. Um, and I was its first ever teaching assistant also. So um, I have, I, it was a great opportunity to, to get to know sort of the incoming class and, and people who have been around but have been interested in this AI program for a while. Uh, it's been a lot of fun.
0: Cool, so I guess walk us through the kind of your elevator pitch on what you study in this program.
1: Sure, um, so my, my research is in uh, ethics. In artificial intelligence. The, the big question is that I am approaching is how do we make uh, robots, how do we make AI that act ethically in the future? Um, it's, sort of a, it's sort of a big question, you know, um, and we don't really purport to say, like, we, we, we don't really pretend that we know what the right ethical answers are to these sorts of questions, to, to the questions of, uh, you know, like uh, the trolley problem. Or, uh, or or should a drone crash on a playground, or should it crash a, on a public park? Um, but we are, I am designing algorithms that let us talk about what these answers should be. Uh, I am helping design algorithms that let us uh, make robots uh, follow certain ethical guidelines or not. Um, Without these sorts of tools that I'm working on, we don't have the capability to tell robots, you know, you should, you should crash on a playground or you should crash on a, on, a, uh, on a public park because, you know, like, children are more precious than, I don't people who spend time in parks. Maybe that's your answer. I don't know. Um, uh, but but the, the ability to give those sorts of directions to a robot are really important. Um, and and yeah, to be able to answer those sorts of ethical questions, we have to have those tools in place.
0: So you're kind of like a robotics ethics translator, yes, or interpreter for robots or for people who are writing code for robots.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of what I do is is making these sorts of making a language specifically a logic uh, that we can talk about ethics in that the robots can sort of interpret. Um, another big part of what I do is um, trying to get uh, try- trying to turn um, sort of a, de- a logical ethical decision into a way a robot behaves um, so going automatically from from you saying you know we should value uh, the lives of children over the lives of the elderly for instance um, and, and turning that into a robot's behavior automatically instead of having you having to have you like you know code every single scenario out, uh, that a robot might, might interact with.
2: So is there, could you explain what makes our current methods of communicating not great? Cause I think I, I've done a little bit of coding. I could hop into Python and be like, if crash into nursing home or elementary school, choose nursing home, right? right. Like my little if then statement and mm-hmm. Python will make the crash happen. So what, why can't we just sort of, type all that in or communicate with these AI as is?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so one of the big things that happens with the design of robots right now is that um, the these sort of if-then statements are designed based off of numbers that are learned over time, right? So, So it's not people generally going in and saying, if uh, if if playground or if crash, then playground or if crash, then playground or um, or something you know, or or um, uh, park, uh, it's park gets, you know, 95 points. Uh, playground gets like 112 points um, and you want to minimize, you know, the number of points you get when you crash. Um, and what this turns in, what we call this in machine learning is a black box. We don't know how these numbers get assigned over time or over the experience of of a robot of a robot. What, what they get is a huge set of training data. They get, um, you know, they get examples of uh, a robot crashing in a park or a robot crashing in a playground or a robot crashing. And then it chooses to do A or B and they get lots and lots and lots of that Um what this ends up with is what I would refer to as an implicit set of ethical responses. Um, it has a lot of examples of what humans might do in that situation or what, you know, what, what robots that don't have ethical considerations might do in those situations. But it doesn't explicitly think about its ethics. Right. It doesn't explicitly represent what its what its obligations are in a certain safety critical situation. And that's what we want to change. We want to be able to talk about explicitly what a robot's ethics are in a given situation. When, when, when safety is critical, we should be able to say explicitly, like, these are what the ethics that this robot are, like, that, that the robot is following. These, these are exactly what ethics is following. And I think that's important for us to be able to trust Robots, for us to be able to understand robots, for us to be able to sort of get on board, like physically get on board robots. Right. Like, you know, if we get on board a, a Starship robot, uh, if, if it was driving us around Corvallis, you know, we 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 would want it to be. Starship
0: able... robots are the little food robots that run all over yes. campus. For, <laughs> yes, for exactly. For who have not seen them. They <laughs> deliver food to the dorms. Yeah. And there are many viral videos of them doing things <laughs> like
1: falling into holes or getting run over by trains <laughs> exactly <laughs> we we would want to be able to predict what its ethics are right if, if humans were writing those we want to be able to know that it it is thinking you know don't run into the train track unless you are like 100 certain there is not a train coming
0: so it sounds to me like we can't predict every single scenario a robot is going to encounter so we mm-hmm. can't code implicitly i guess every scenario what to do so it has to know how to make a decision
1: well so i we can we sort of can infer implicitly what's going to happen that's um that's definitely a thing that is happening right so so there are a lot of like the most popular way that i know of that um sort of self-driving car companies Mm. are sharing the robots are is this sort of implicit approach Um, but a problem with the implicit approach is that um, it's hard to it's hard to control from sort of like big air quotes, first principles. Um, it's hard to say, like value human lives, regardless of who the, of who the human is. Right. It's hard to say um, in general, pedestrians are like, you know, we need to care about pedestrians safety more than like a passenger safety because they're not in a big metal capsule. Right, um, those sorts of things you don't get to sort of program in from this style of training mm-hmm. uh, a robot or a self-driving car, for that matter. Um, and so we end up with cars that um, you know are trained on Bay Area roads, right? They're trained um, for for sunny skies and and warm days, and so they. And frankly, uh, like a population of mostly white people. Um, and so they're not prepared for uh, like seeing um, clouds in the sky or, mm-hmm. or like, you know, a mostly uh, like a mostly like uh, 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 like snow dusted road uh, or people with darker skin. Like this is a thing that we know that is a problem in training these AIs is um is dark skin like we know that because the majority of the people that they see, um, they have a harder time recognizing people with darker skin, and that's a really big problem. We're talking about cars, right? Like we don't want to be able to we we don't want to run into people with darker skin because they're harder for the AIs to recognize on a roadway, uh, and that's like a slightly different problem than the problem I'm working on. But but I think it feeds into this overall like acknowledgement that we have to we have to consider when it comes to these AIs um, running uh, safety-critical systems in the environment that we share.
0: So, oh, go ahead, Brian.
2: <laughs> so it sounds to me like if I had an AI system and it watched one too many videos of my cat, it mm-hmm. would learn to steal pizza. <laughs> and then that robot would just start stealing pizza. And then what you're doing is you're saying, no, robot, please don't steal pizza. Stealing pizza's bad. Yeah. Unless you're pancake, <laughs> the cat.
1: That's, that's very, that's, yeah, that's, that's it. Um, Pancake the cat is allowed to steal pizza because pancake is extraordinarily adorable. Facts, Um, yeah. Facts, yeah. (laughs) These are just, these are just logically acceptable (laughs) truths. Um, However, other cats don't get that luxury. Um, Not as cute. And and, and if the robot cats, definitely not as cute, right? (laughs) Um, And so those robot cats shouldn't be, shouldn't be allowed to do those same things. Um, Those robot cats, we should be able to say, You know, like, don't value stealing pizza as strongly. Maybe other people need that pizza.
0: (laughs) So I kind of want to backtrack a little bit here. You mentioned something earlier, and we also talked about this a little bit in our interview. So you you brought up the the concept of logic. Mm -hmm. And so is is logic, tell us a little bit about logic, different kinds of logic, and how that kind of factors into what you're doing.
1: Yeah, so logic has been around for a long time. Uh, Formal logic, uh, you know, it has been a big thing in computer science itself since like George Boole in like, you know, the, I don't know, the, I, I'm gonna like get yelled at by some historians of computer <laughs> science here, but like pretty early is where I'm gonna leave that. Um, <laughs> like before before computers really existed, uh, we had George Bull talking about here's how we're gonna think about thinking. Really, mm. like is, he, that,
0: is that what you would define logic as? Well,
1: that's what, that is at least what George or Bull. What you define, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. George Bull uh, set out to say like these are the principles on which we should talk about like thinking of the things we know about. Mm. So he set out really on like what, what you would consider maybe a philosophical journey. Like, how is it that humans should think? About the things they know, here are the principles that we base what we know on like th- these are these are the steps we take, uh, and that became uh, the logic that a lot of computer scientists use today uh, boolean logic. This becomes a huge part of of computer science. like if you're a computer scientist, you probably know what boolean logic is it's It's big, right? Um, but knowing is sort of just one Way of thinking about the world. Um, there, so so there are like possible worlds in logic that you can know about. Right. This is this is um, what we call Kripke semantics. Um, it's a way of thinking about uh, worlds of logic and how they relate to each other in terms of what you know. Mm. Um, you have like world A, which has these true facts about it, and world B, which has different true facts about it. And you can sort of talk talk about how world A and world B relate to each other. Um, That's really important if you want to, like, have a database full of facts about the world and then derive from those facts what must be true about the world that you're in. Um, We want to do something slightly different. We want to talk about what ought to be the case, right? So, So what should be and what is aren't necessarily the same thing. This is actually a pretty big difference in the way of talking about logic that is sort of the traditional approach that you see George Bull talking about, um, that you see most of logic talking about, and, and what is called the deontic mm-hmm. approach. Um, so deontic logic, instead of talking about what is the case, talks about what should be the case. So you can have this database of facts about what is true in a world, and then this, this different database of, of what should be true in the world, and there's a bunch of philosophy that goes into showing that these two things aren't necessarily the same. Just because something is the case doesn't mean it should be the case. Just because something should be true doesn't mean it is true. There's all these relationships uh, that that you want to have between what is and what ought to be uh, that build up uh, the sort of deontic logic that I that I develop and I work with.
2: So does. Can, like, good old Bull and Dion live together harmoniously in one robot where they hold hands? Or do you have to choose, like, which side you're going to be on?
1: They can definitely live harmoniously. Uh, And that, I think, is one of the upsides, is you can have these sorts of, like, um, these sort of logic-solving programs inside of a robot where it's like, oh, okay, so A is the case and B is the case, Um, then C should be the case, and at the same time be like, A is the case and B is the case, but... D should be the case in the future. And so it, it realizes that something that, that is the case doesn't mean that something else shouldn't be the case in the future, or vice versa. Um, it's actually a really big thing in deciding how um, robots should behave, because if it's, if it's behaving just based on... If you're trying to give rules on how a robot should behave, just in this sort of Boolean logic, or, or similar logic that is just talking about truth... Uh, in, what, opt- or in what, what is the case. Um, you can end up in a case uh, where, uh, say, if a car um, should never, or you, you say the car will never, will never is like a, a, a statement about truth. You say the car will never uh, like cross the double yellow line, right? That's, that's like a good thing. You, you, you don't want your car to ever cross the double yellow line uh, when it's driving. Uh, but if you say the car will never do that, and then it hits an icy patch in mm-hmm. the road, and it does that. You end up in a place where it believes it never does that, and then it recognizes it has done that, uh, and, and this this causes something robot
0: crisis. Right? Yeah,
1: this causes an existential crisis in the <laughs> robot. Like literally, the logic the the logic itself undergoes uh, something called the principle of explosion.
2: I wish we had a sound effect right <laughs> now. <laughs> Wait. we might yeah oh, we
1: might. I, i'll give it some time <laughs> it <explodes laughs> its... there exactly. we go exactly <laughs> and and that's not the car that's the car's mental state the car's mental state explodes which okay, is so not something really right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not something you want your car to undergo oh, you don't no. want your car to have a, a like a mental crisis about the truth so While what would you're that it.
0: look like? Would it just like be frozen with can't can't make a decision? Probably
1: yes, because what it, what happens when the principle ex- of explosion is I guess experienced, um, which is a weasel word here because I I, I don't know if, if experience is the right word, but that's what I'm, <laughs> I'm going with. Um, if if a if like a logical system experiences the principle of explosion, all things are true, all at once. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is which is probably a terrifying thing to experience. Um, I, I just I, last uh, last night I saw um, at at the dark side, uh, everything everywhere all at once, uh, where the main character experiences everything that it, like everything is true all at once for the and definitely has an existential breakdown. I don't want my car experiencing that <laughs> while I am in it. Um, so Deontic logic. Uh, gives us sort of a, a way out of this, right? So deontic logic separates what is the case and what should be the case. So you can say you should never cross the double yellow lines. And then when it comes to the point where it hits an icy patch and it crosses the double yellow lines, um, it can sort of separate in its, in its quote unquote mind, in, it, in its logical system. It's a, it's a separate experience to have crossed the double yellow lines and to know that it shouldn't Cross the double yellow lines. It has a, it has a different, it, or it can have, depending on how you design the logic, and can have a different experience, so to speak, when that, when that crossover happens. And then it can deal with what we call um, contrary to duty action, mm-hmm. right? So it has, it has done something that it shouldn't. It has crossed the double yellow lines because it hit an, hit an icy patch. Like, you know, nothing the car can do about that. Um, and then it's like, oh, okay, well, I shouldn't have done that. I can recover from that because I'm operating on a different logical system.
0: So it could go back into the lane it was supposed to be in or pull off to the side of the road or whatever the safest course of action would
1: be in that case. Yes, exactly.
2: So, unlike most people, the AI can recover from their existential crises <laughs> in a matter of moments.
1: Yes, how do we Incredible. install this logic? In I know. My <laughs> can you make one of these for me? <laughs> sadly, sadly, that is the uh, the purview of philosophers. Uh, if you're a computer, I can help you. Uh, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to ask some philosophers and and maybe some psychologists about whether or not you can use that whole, that same system.
0: So, what does your research actually look like on a day to day basis? Are you like out on the streets interviewing robots about the decisions they've made throughout the day. Yeah. I know that's a ridiculous example. No, that's exactly
1: yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, hey, robot, um, what, what was your day like? How do you feel? Um,
0: what decisions did you have to make today?
1: Exactly. Uh, no, I, um, one of the things I actually I, I say to other computer scientists is that however, however much math you think I'm doing, it's more than that or less than that. It is never exactly... The amount of math you expect me to be doing, um, and part of that is because uh, I am either uh, writing code to to sort of make logical systems uh, that can follow the the rules and assumptions that we've been working on in my lab, or I am writing mathematical proofs about the 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 logical system itself. Um, okay,
0: and I, so microbiologist here. I have no idea how those two relate. So how how does um writing proofs out on a board mm-hmm. then inform does it inform the code or does it kind of tell you more about the logic or
1: it tells me more about the logic. Okay. So um a lot of times from my experience anyway, I I can I can write the code without having um the sort of the, the nice logical properties that I would want to prove, you know, so things like um, uh, oh consistency in the logic. Right. So so one of the things that I might want to that I might want to be able to prove is that um, um, uh, is implies ought. So this is a big thing in deontic logic uh, in general, which is like if something is truly the case, then then like it should be the case or at least if something should be the case then then it will be the then, like it can be the case right so so in this last to sort of give an example of this last one if you if if you think you have an obligation to go to the grocery store right if if you are like sitting there on the couch and you're like i should go to the grocery store then it should be possible like physically possible for you to go to the grocery store. If it's, if it's like, you know, midnight and the grocery store doesn't open until 7am and you're like, I should go to the grocery store in the next hour. That doesn't seem like a reasonable thing for you to, that doesn't seem like a logical conclusion for you to come to when you can't physically go to the grocery store. Mm. Um, but you know, if the grocery store is open and you think you should go to the grocery store and you can go to the grocery store, then it makes sense for you to think yeah, I should go to the grocery store. Um, that that specific sort of uh of decision or or rule that specific sort of rule that that because you think you should do something implies that you can do that thing like that's an important sort of thing that you should be able to prove given a logic now i can like program a system that follows i don't know arbitrary rules basically um and I won't necessarily know that it follows, for instance, this rule that I've just put out, uh, this rule that that ought implies can. Um, but it'd be nice if we could. It it comes with certain guarantees, right? We can do we can do basically math with the sorts of guarantees that that a logic gives. Um, and so a lot of my time is spent proving that the logics that I'm developing follow. Th- certain sets of guarantees that are that are important for us to do logic about.
0: Gotcha, so I know that um, with machine learning, mm-hmm. I hear people talk about how it's basically just like statistics wrapped up in fancy packaging. But this sounds like it's a little different than, than that. Um, and I don't think we got to this earlier. I don't even think we've talked about machine learning at all. But what what's the difference between that and AI and like logic and what you're doing, I guess?
1: Yeah. So machine learning in yeah, I think I think it's a I think it's a reasonable concept to th- to think about machine learning as as statistics wrapped up fancy. Um you know, I am sure I have colleagues who would say it's it's more than that and they've I'm sure they've got a point but I would too and they might be listening right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know, I I think that's a that's a good thing to to think of it. like that's a good starting point um to think about it. Um Machine learning, I would say, is a subset of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence, um, like, writ large, is just the, the automation of anything that, he, that we would, like, possibly think of as something that only humans could do. Um, one of the problems there is that, like, we have slowly been, like, narrowing down what it is we think humans can do <laughs> over time. Um, you know, there was a time where we thought, like, yeah only humans could add two numbers together robots can't do that and then like you know in the 1800s people made like mechanical machines that would add two numbers together and we're like well yeah that's just addition come on like robots can't do like long division obviously and then we made robots that did that and people were like well you know calculus calculus can't be done by robots and then we made machines that could do calculus and so on and it's just been it's just been getting narrower and narrower ever since um but anything that um that that like we could conceive of that has like a reasoning component to it that has here are a bunch of facts um that are maybe symbolic in nature they're not necessarily numbers they're they're like their symbolic propositions or, or even I think that um, like symbolic algebra should be considered uh, artificial intelligence mm-hmm. where we have like here are some facts about some algebraic like system. Uh, what are the outcomes of this underneath some like assumptions of algebra? Uh, I think that should be considered artificial intelligence. Um, and it's like, you know, it's something that there are programs for a lot of really nice calculators these days <laughs> that you can have, you know. Like during an SAT or whatever, can do can do algebra based off of the symbols. They don't need to know what the numbers are. They can just tell you what a and b equal given c, d, e, and f, right? Um, and I I think that's I think that counts as AI. Uh, somebody will fight me on that one, I'm sure.
0: And AI was kind of first, I guess, a, a concept or introduced back in the 1970s, right?
1: Or earlier, or, yeah. Or earlier, okay. yeah. So Alan Turing. Um, okay. Yep. As soon as he created, uh, like his first, um, mechanical computer, uh, for, for Bletchley park to like during world war two to, to crack the Enigma code. Um, like as soon as, as soon as he made something like that, as soon as that was in his head, um, he thought, why can't this think like a human? Like what, what is stopping a machine from thinking like a human can think? Um and uh Turing and a lot of his contemporaries at the time thought that um <clears throat> they thought they thought that logic, that this logic that I've been talking about is the, the way, the way to making machines think like humans. They thought if we just give them the right rules and the right knowledge to start off with, they'll be able to think like any human can think. Um and then there was like a lot of philosophical debate about that, whether or not that's the case. Um, and uh, But over time, people realized it's, it's a pretty inefficient way to sort of code in experience about the world. There are so many facts about the world that are basically unnecessary or only like half-truth or what have you that, that it doesn't become useful to, to remember to think about uh, or to come to a logical conclusion about, or a bunch of rules uh, that are in the logic that people, or that robots, don't really need. Um, and so over time, this approach died out. Uh, and this would be, like, the, the first AI winter mm. um, that happened in, in the 70s, uh, where, where people were like, okay, well, the computer, like, we can't give them enough knowledge, or we don't have enough computing power to, to work through all these logical truths or what have you, um, so we'll we'll go work on something else basically, and and all the funding dried up, and and people started working on AI for a while, um, and then in the uh, in the '90s, um, computers got you know way better, uh, like a, a Windows desktop became a thing that that the average consumer could could start to think about affording, um, and that with that came like better computers in general um and so people could think about like okay w- what what sorts of ways can we twist the data around if we just have a whole bunch of knowledge n- and not necessarily like a logical approach to how it should fit together but a mathematical approach to how it should fit together like what are the basically what are the statistics mm. that we can that we can wrap it in that we can wrap into it <laughs> And, and wring out so, something we call knowledge. Um, what does that start to look like?
2: So I'm imagining a scientist playing Oregon Trail and being like, finally, the power I need to build my robot. Can you confirm that's how it happened?
1: Um, <laughs> I, I can either confirm or deny that <laughs> uh, that is how it happened. But, uh, but somebody definitely, definitely cro- crossed the Willamette one day uh, in, in their game of, of torture the data Um, (laughs) everyone's like we made it we did it we made it to Oregon (laughs) y'all
0: I I think it's kind of interesting I'm just thinking about this now um and reflecting on this how you know over the past um half century or so there have been these advances in computing power Mm -hmm. and AI but there's also been these strides forward in neuroscience and understanding Mm -hmm. how the human brain works and understanding that it's so much more complex than we thought um Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, how can a robot make decisions like a human can? Well, we're not even entirely sure how a human right. makes decisions.
1: Absolutely, um, I've had I've had conversations like this with uh, friends of mine who work in uh, computational neuroscience, um, and and they've in the past been like, yeah, don't don't make robots that think like humans. <laughs> like we we have no idea how humans make decisions. <laughs> it would be awful. <laughs> like it, they just seem like humans are just like you know maximizing some sort of potential between the neurons i don't know like there, it's very strange um and so there's uh, maybe that's a, a point in in this formal logic approach's favor where we have these first principles under which we should be making decisions where we sort of all agree that like yes a and b implies something right uh whereas with um with this uh, sort of black box approach to artificial intelligence, it's hard to say why is it making that decision. Just like a human, like wh- why did why did so and so decide to do that? We don't know, but it'd be really nice if we did. Uh, and, and that's the sort of that's the sort of question that really drives a lot of my research: is is why is this the decision that should be made? Is this a consistent decision? Um, so so one of the like one of the big th- approaches to artificial intelligence that has come out over the last half cent- half century is uh, neural networks, which is mm-hmm. um this approach that sort of mimics the human brain um it is designed uh it is inspired at least uh to to behave the way that neurons in the human brain work um it doesn't really do that, but like you know we'll pretend it does <laughs> um and the conclusions that come to it comes to uh, these sort of neural network uh, approaches are opaque. We we it's hard to look at all of the numbers that a neural network has learned and say yes, this is, these are the decisions it's making, right? So if you show it like a picture of a cat, and it it like it it I don't know it, it trickles all of those all of those numbers that are in the picture down into cat or dog, and it's hard to say. Why Why it has decided the picture is a cat or why it has decided the picture is a dog. Um, but we can't just point to it and be like, ah, yes, that's the like, these are the ear neurons or those are the nose neurons. Mm. Uh, there are pro- there are people who are trying to do that and they're, they're trying really hard to pin down in a huge neural network. Like what? Like which neurons are the ones we should be paying attention to, et cetera. Um, but even those are having a really difficult time. Um, it's not straightforward. Um, if we had, uh, and I'm not saying there should be a logic to describe like what a cat is versus a dog is, right? <laughs> like that seems, that seems like a sort of logical problem that, that maybe we shouldn't like, uh, maybe, maybe we should just believe the neural network. Um, but we want guarantees, right? When it comes to safety critical systems like a self-driving mm-hmm. car we want guarantees about like what it does when it sees a cat, when it sees a dog. Um, yeah. And and those are the sorts of problems that that I end up being concerned with.
2: I'm, I'm reminded of this like famous study on game theory where humans were split into pairs, students were, and give, one was given $100 and they were told to divide the $100 between the pair of them. The other person got to... Either accept the offer or deny it. If They accept it; they both get however much money. If they deny it, no one gets any money. And according to like game theory, or basically like some of these logical math stuff, you should approve any amount of money, mm-hmm. even if it's five dollars. You got five dollars; that's a whole candy bar you didn't have before. Um, but almost very close to the fifty-fifty split. If it wasn't fifty-fifty, folks would reject it out of mm-hmm. like a sense of fairness. So I'm curious: Will you have succeeded in computing ethics when your robots? Reject free money if it's not enough.
1: Yeah, so that's <laughs> that is, I think, a really good question. Um, this is, yeah, this, it's a classic um, uh, game theory problem, um, and you're right. There, there is a question of fairness there. So, so if we had just like, you know, two um, machine learning agents, you know, two two of these black boxes. Um, betting against each other on this game of $100 versus, you know, no dollar how, how much money can can one agent offer the other that the other the other agent agrees to um yeah you if they're just maximizing utility one like one of the robots would just accept like $1 here's one of my here's one of my $100 um have fun uh and and the agent would be like yep that maximizes utility sounds good thanks for that $1 um but as humans, we would be able to say, like, no, that does not seem like an ideal scenario, right? We we can say that doesn't seem fair, and and I think that's important for the way that we expect robots in our environment to behave, right? If if we are if we are given a bunch of robots that are just maximizing utility, and we have to deal with them on the day to day, um, I I feel like that's just gonna like really annoy some people when they're like, no, robot, you should be. Acting fair. What is wrong with you? Right? A robot should behave the way that we as a society, that the like the society that the robots are behaving in, they should be behaving in a way that is socially acceptable.
0: And that seems like it's really in, in many cases culturally specific.
1: Yes, absolutely. And this is one of the things that I'm I'm really passionate about in my research is making robots that can be socially acceptable. Dependent on the society that they are acting in, so each culture, each society that a robot is going to behave in is going to have their own rules, their own sort of like socially accepted ethics um, and, and getting a robot to accept by or, or abide by some culture's ethics uh, is I think paramount to its ability to, to be accepted and it's sort of like a, it's sort of like a reinforcing cycle if you have a robot. That is like, you know, uh, if you have a a starship robot that is in a society and it's like cars, I don't care about cars and gets like run over all the time. It's not going to be a very successful robot. People aren't going to trust it Mm -hmm. right to deliver their food. They're not going to order food from from the starship robots when they can get somebody in a car that's going to be safer with their food. Like it's a it's a sort of. Minuscule example in terms of like the Ethical payload right it's just Food uh, that like People are ordering by robot or by car um, But I, I Think it, it I think it tells a story because if You are in a society where There are no cars right th- The same behavior is going to be Totally different mm. right if a, if a Robot doesn't care about cars in a society That doesn't have cars then it's like Yeah sure why why wouldn't why wouldn't I just trust the robot But if you're living in a society with cars and the robot doesn't care about cars, uh, then all of a sudden it's a big deal. Uh, And and I think the same can be said about any of these sort of safety critical systems where you're like, you know, hey, pedestrians matter a lot in our society. We should care about pedestrians when our self-driving cars are on the roads uh versus like you know nobody walks around in our city like it's fine if the if the car blasts through a, a crosswalk nobody's going to be on it anyway right mm. different societies are going to have different approaches to the way that these ethics should be implemented and i think it's important to have algorithms and mechanics that that let these um that let these uh, ethical systems be implemented and that's one of the things i work on
0: yeah
2: how did you get interested in this problem? Were you like, one day I'm going to meet a robot and they better give me 50 out of those $100. <laughs> or like, what? How did how did you get here? It's such a fascinating topic to be in.
1: Yeah, there was um when I was like 12, there's this robot that just ran away with a bunch of money of mine and I was Typical. I vowed yeah. vengeance. <laughs> um I think As you I, should. I think a lot of roboticists <laughs> will uh will agree with that story. Uh no, no I um <laughs> I started um, in, in about high school, I, I, was, I was programming computers because I was bad at math, uh, which seems counterintuitive maybe, but, um, but computers can remember math way better than humans can. Um, and so I could tell my calculator, like, this is how you do math, I'm not going to remember this man, but y- you got to, because the, <laughs> like, it's going to matter a lot on the next exam, um, and the computer would remember it every time. Uh, so I got really into, like, this whole idea of computer programming. You could do math for me. This is great. Um, and, then, uh, and then in high school, I, I started really getting into uh, psychology and philosophy. It's like, why do people make the decisions that they make? What is, and, and, and if they're making decisions this way, what is the right way to make decisions, right? There, there seems to be a difference between the way humans make decisions on average and what is maybe the right way to make decisions, right? We're not, humans aren't perfect. Uh, but like, if we could pretend that humans were perfect for a minute, what is the way that they would make decisions, right? There, there's differences there. And these seem like important decisions or important differences. Um, and so those, those three things sort of stuck in my head. It's, it's how do humans make decisions? What are the right way to make decisions? And, and how does that, Turn into code, basically. Like, how can you how can you program something to make the right kinds of decisions? Um, and so I was thinking about, uh, you know, I, I was I was getting ready to start my my undergrad, um, and I was thinking, you know, what what is it that I want to study? What what do I actually want to do? You know, with my life, which is kind of an insane thing to ask a sixteen year old, but there I was. <laughs> uh-huh. Principle
2: of explosion.
1: Right. <laughs> Um, and uh, I was thinking what, what is it that I'm going to tell you and I read Isaac Asimov's iRobot um, and the main character uh, is faced with these logic puzzles basically um, here's a robot that believes you know here, here are two rules that this robot absolutely follows and a third rule that it kind of follows some of the times here's the situation here's the environment that it's placed in why is it acting the way it's acting and the main character, Susan Colvin, uh, she called herself a robo-psychologist. <laughs> uh, and she had to figure out, like she had to go back through the, the logic or think about the logic. She had to think about the environment. And every time she was thinking about why is it that these rules lead to this kind of behavior? And when I saw that she could, she could sort of hybridize like the the psychology of these robots, why is it they're thinking the way they think? The psychology or the the philosophy of these robots, like what is the right decision that a robot would make under these rules, under this circumstance? And then the the computer science that is inherent there, that you know there are rules that are programmed into these robots. How do we make them behave in the way that we actually want them to behave, and not in this you know weird scary way that they are misbehaving? Um, seeing that. Made me decide to to pursue computer science. I knew that doing computer science, I could, I could tackle these big questions about psychology, about philosophy, in a way that could maybe help shape the future of the world.
0: So, are you a robo psychologist these days?
1: You know, um, a little bit, uh, but most of the work I do right now is is ethics. So maybe I'm a robo ethicist. Robo ethicist
2: you got to get a business card that says that.
0: Yeah. I, <laughs> I roboethicist. That was, the, that was the name of the blog this week. <laughs>
2: um,
0: well, I think we're wrapping up the show here, uh, but we do have a couple of traditions to lead us out, and one of those is we will ask you to give a piece of advice. So tell us what your advice is and who it's for.
1: All right. Um, this is for... Uh I would say for for graduate students, uh, for incoming graduate students, for people people who are interested in pursuing graduate school, um, I think research is one of like the highest callings uh, that that humans can have. It's like research and art; like those are the two, in my opinions, like sort of end goals of society: to to know things that we haven't known before and to feel things we haven't felt before. Um, But when it comes to to being a graduate student, it's important not to sacrifice one for the other. Um, It's really easy to just be in the headspace of doing research all the time. Uh, But it's important to remember what it is to be human. Uh, When you're making robots, remember that too. (laughs) That is
0: great. We are not robots, even if we feel like we're exploding
2: sometimes. (laughs) Even if we also have existential crises. (laughs) They, they last
1: too long for us to be robots so.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us tonight Colin. Um, Thank you for
1: having me. It's been a lot of fun
0: Yeah it's been great I, I've learned so much uh, And our our last tradition.
2: What song would you like us to to have your outro to, to?
1: yeah this is uh this is a song that I think is is criminally underrated. It's PMA by the Ballantines.
0: And with that, thank you for tuning in to Inspiration Dissemination. We will be back on same time, same place next week. Have a great week. Corvallis.
1: Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID.
2: This theme
0: music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamad. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible.